Welcome back to the Faithfully Entrusted Podcast. We hope that you had a wonderful Thanksgiving with your family. Uh, We are going to be doing exactly what uh, the mission of our podcast is. We're going to be diving deep into the scriptures today to uncover some profound truths that can uh, prayerfully transform our lives. I am a substitute host today. They're going to put me up for the sixth man award, uh, Travis. My name is Brent Snyder, and I am, of course, joined uh, by Travis Tyler. I'm uh, filling in as host today for Zachariah, who I think is still on a Thanksgiving bender, is why he's not with us. That's what it is. (laughs) But I sort of alluded to this already. We are going to take a very special journey uh, through the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Our desire is just going to be to try to understand the rich content, um, how it impacts our lives uh, today. And so we're excited to be able to sort of dive into this gospel. It's uh, really hard, Travis, to imagine a world without the gospel of Matthew where we are missing uh, what we sort of recognize as the most uh, clear communication of the Great Commission in the entire Bible. And so we're excited about what uh, we'll uncover through this study or this look at the gospel of Matthew. And Travis, let's just get started with a very basic foundational question. What is a gospel? That's a, that's a great question, Brent. You know, when we think of the Bible, there's a lot of different categories of types of writing. You know, we have apocalyptic, we have wisdom literature like the Proverbs, uh, we have uh, historical narrative, which is going to be like, um, you know, Genesis is full of historical narrative. Acts in the New Testament would be the counterpart, you know what I mean, in historical narrative. And then the Gospels hold sort of a, a special place in Bible interpretation because they're not really just uh, historic narrative, although they are at a minimum that. I would probably argue that they are historical record coupled with theological exposition on top of that so that you understand the events that are happening in a theological light. But the word gospel comes from an old English word, which means good it means good news, literally. Um, you know, the old the old saints in the first century would never say the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of John, you know, those four books that we refer to as the gospels, they would say the gospel according to, because they understood that there was only one gospel, namely that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a perfect sacrifice to appease the wrath of God and was dead, uh, was buried and raised uh, for the payment of your sins and mine. So, you know, there's only one gospel, but the gospels contain the gospel. Uh, and so, you know, that's a common misnomer. I, I think we're probably moving into a time where if you ask people, what are the gospels? Instead of saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they'll probably look at you and say, what's a gospel? Mm. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's true, Travis. Now, of course, just looking at the scripture as a whole, um, there are what, you know, we would refer to as four gospels, but uh, we also sort of identify there's synoptic gospels and then there's there's John. And so, of course, Matthew would fall into that synoptic gospel category. Uh, so just share a little bit with our listeners about uh, what we mean when we say synoptic gospels. So I guess one thing that needs to sort of be clarified and moved out of the way is the first century understanding of plagiarism versus 21st century understanding of plagiarism. We mm-hmm. we kind of lose our minds when people copy anybody for any any reason, um, you know, but you got to remember you know, a first century mentality and thinking is that if somebody 
accurately captured in a writing fashion a particular truth or account, eyewitness account, why wouldn't you copy that down and use it? You know, and that's sort of the mentality that the synoptic gospels have. You know, synoptic synchronized to be all of one. You know, we, we're familiar with that to sync up computers and things like that. That's that's sort of in the same word family and category. And then optic, we know what that means. Optic is to see, right? So synced up to see the same thing. So that's what these three synoptic gospels mean. They're they're standing and observing the same events and the same record. And you're going to see mass portions that, you know, Matthew's going to contain like 60% of what Luke contains. You know what I mean? It's going to contain, you know, over 40% of what uh, Mark contains. And I think Mark's probably the oldest of the four gospels. And then, but there, I think I would argue that all four gospels are written prior to 60 AD. And so they're very close, very close to the life of Christ. Yeah, I would agree with the dates there, um, even, even the order. And I think too, uh, just to comment on your plagiarism before uh, your comments about plagiarism, before we move into Matthew specifically, uh, you know, I, I think what we might consider plagiarism now at least as it pertains to Matthew and and probably Luke as well. Um, there's, you know, it's pretty widely accepted that they would have uh, referenced Mark in some form or fashion, um, but that wasn't so much to create an account that they didn't know. I think it was more of an accountability of uh, sort of verifying, okay, this is, this is what I remember. This is what I think I saw. Let me check with other eyewitnesses to verify that, uh, that these, that these things are in order. And of course, you know, you're getting three, three different perspectives. Um, You're getting, uh, and of course, each of these gospel writers are influenced by, uh, other eyewitnesses as well. It's not just it's not just their account. It's the interviews of the others who were there as well. So, uh, yeah, well, with Ma- that, Matthew go- would have been a firsthand account. Though, that's right. right? Matthew, yeah, that's Paul, right. It's called. Um, is it in chapter nine, Brent, where Levi is called as a tax collector by Christ Himself? And oddly yes. enough, since we're on the topic of Matthew, we learn the most about Matthew from Matthew. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he tells us the most about himself. <clears throat> so we don't see as much record of him in the other gospels. But anytime you see Levi as a disciple reference, mm-hmm. that's the same guy that we're talking about that would have written these as a tax collector too, nonetheless, which would have been a pretty hated position Absolutely. for most of the people of his day. But being a tax collector also inclined him to be a perfect gospel writer because mm-hmm. he would have been considered a secular scribe, keeping accounts of payables and receivables and and you know other sorts of information and there was actually at the time a shorthand that the tax collectors developed and was sort of accepted by it also being a secular scribe and tax collector made him trilingual you know he would have been Mm, able to speak greek he would have been able to speak aramaic like a sort of hebrew derivative and he would have definitely been able to speak latin being one who worked for the romans so you know he's able to he's got language uh, ability on his side as a gospel writer. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, fascinating background on Matthew. And it kind of makes you wonder why they give Judas the money bag instead of Matthew, doesn't it? Doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think Matthew would have been a better choice uh, to hold on to the tax money there, the the giving money. But but yeah, he's, and, and, you know, each, before we move on, one more thing I'd like to say about the four Gospels, and then we'll move on to the next thing. But uh, And I think this is a good transition for where we're going next. But 
when you think about the four gospels, you have to keep in mind that one, their backgrounds are distinct and different as writers. And then two, who they are primarily writing to is a different audience. So uh, Matthew holds a key point because for many reasons, like if you look in church history at how the early church ordered the gospels, Mm-hmm. Matthew's always first. That's right. It always serves as like a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament, primarily because Matthew quotes more Old Testament passages than any of the other gospels. And in addition mm-hmm. to that, Matthew is either second or third for most Old Testament quotations in the entirety of the New Testament. I think the only two books that quote the Old Testament more than Matthew in the New Testament are, of course, Hebrews and then Revelation. And then it'd be Matthew. Actually, this is a fascinating thing about Matthew. He quotes the Old Testament more than all other three Gospels combined. And so, you know, he's he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience. You know, Luke is writing to the upper crust of the Greek culture, right? Um, You have Mark is writing to the Gentiles, as well as John is writing to the Gentiles, but that's not where Matthew starts. You know, Matthew starts and he he has a Jewish audience in mind, people who mm-hmm. were raised on Torah, people who are familiar with Torah, people who get the Torah, who live and breathe the Torah as part of their culture and daily life. He's writing to these people. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, and understanding his audience does help us uh appreciate i think the location of matthew uh in in the bible because it's it's almost as if matthew is as he's writing to his jewish audience is saying okay guys here were the prophecies delivered and here's how christ fulfilled them right here's what you've been studying your entire life right here was christ you missed it now you've got to see it. Let me give you the full picture because you didn't see it while he was here. And so good stuff that I guess that sort of naturally leads us. Maybe we've hit on this a little bit, but I think it would be good to drill to drill down a little bit more, Travis, on um, sort of the, the writing style of Matthew's gospel. Yeah, I think it's important to note here that I, I would almost call this the Jewish nuance of Matthew. There's a Jewish nuance. So uh, if you're not Jewish and you didn't grow up with Torah from the point you were able to drink milk from, you know, a bottle or your mom's breast, then some of the things are going to be missed. Let me let me see if I can illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, and this is a challenge. You know, I sometimes hear Christians saying things like, oh, we don't need the Old Testament. We just need the New Testament. No, you don't. You need the Old Testament. You will not really truly be able to stand to understand all the nuance in Matthew without without a good Old Testament base. Preach. Um, so um, here's here's an example of what I mean. I didn't come up with this. This came from Peter Lightheart. He talks about, you know, kids in, in the living room on, you know, Saturday morning, they read a joke in the newspaper, and the joke is a lawyer, a priest, a rabbi walk into a bar. The bartender looks up and says, what is this, some kind of a joke? And they don't understand the joke, and they look back at their dad, and they're like, daddy, we don't understand the joke. Now, you could tell, you, you could approach explaining this joke to the kids in one of two ways. Um, You know, you could say, well, look up the word for lawyer, priest, and rabbi, and bartender. And the kids go look that up, and they all have the dictionary definition of what these words mean. But does that help them understand the nuance of the joke? Mm -hmm. What makes them understand the nuance of the joke is, and what makes the joke funny, 
is the 10,000 other, you know, jokes about priests and rabbis and, you know, lawyers walking into bars and people make other punchlines with them. And so, you know, if you don't have what makes the joke funny is not what's said in the joke, but what was said in context around that kind of a joke previously. And so, you know, a word study is not really just going to get it done. And Matthew's kind of like that. You know what I mean? Like there's going to be some nuance with some of the stuff. And you can do a word study on some different things and how you approach this gospel. But it's a lot of times all the other stuff that's not said mm-hmm. around what's being said. I don't know. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think the, I think the point is Matthew is being all the gospel writers are, of course, but uh, Matthew in particular here is is being very uh, strategic in uh, the fact that this is a historical account, but his goal isn't just to sort of regurgitate histor- historical facts. Mm-hmm. Um, he's what I think what I'm understanding you to say is that he's intentionally shaping his narrative in order to communicate this message that that will be powerful and prayerfully received by his Jewish audience. Oh, yeah, I think so. And uh, to say it another way, too, and then like this, this probably, I'm going to have to say something about this illustration. I don't ever, whenever I'm reading a book, I never tell people, I don't ever read the ending first. Some people do this. They read the ending of the book first, and then they go back and read the book. I just think that's horrible. It's like telling people the ending of a game, if they've got it recorded, and then they don't get to experience the joy of it watching it unfold. Um, but Or the uh, agony. Or the agony of it watching it unfold. <laughs> but, um, you know, um, <clears throat> it's important to, as we read the the Gospels, of course, we know the ending, right, of Matthew. Mm. We know the death, burial, resurrection. Uh, you know, as you're first reading the gospel, though, you may not pick up on some of the things that are there. And it's sort of like, um, you know, there's a double reading to the gospel of Matthew. Uh, it, and Peter Lightheart points this out. He he says, he quotes historian David uh, Simmons, who suggested that uh, epistolic readings can be compared to double readings, like a detective narrative. If you're, you know, like a whodunit, you know, story or film uh, that tells two stories at once. Right. And so the story on the surface and the real story is being unveiled by the real suspects in the final chapter. And so once the detective gives you the solution, once you've seen the end of it, uh, you can't go back and reread the book after reading it without seeing, oh, uh, you know, that second narrative, the larger narrative now overshadows the whole thing. And so suddenly the conversation between characters that seemed insignificant on first reading are seen and understood as very significant. And also, in addition to this, um, you know, well, that now I notice that there's an Irish wool cap in the closet, that there's newspapers laying there, that there's a half-smoked cigar, that there's a chipped vase that's sitting on the end table. And that just seemed in the moment like F. Scott Fitzgerald's writing, where it's just extra information about what's going on in the room, but it's now critical being read in light of the end of the larger narrative. But as you're going through it in the moment, you don't notice it as well uh, as that's happening. And so there's a, what it, it, what appears to be random as you read it in light of the end becomes a complex and intelligible narrative here that's guided uh, in a, in a final destination and end by the hand of the author. Does that make sense? No, that's great. I mean, it's uh understanding 
why Matthew is putting the pieces to the puzzle, the way that he's placing the pieces to the puzzle will, will bring a whole new clarity to, uh, and not just clarity, but even emphasis, I think, to the Great Commission, which that's the landing, that's the that's the runway on which he lands, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we're talking about Matthew's gospel, but another example of how this w- works, because I think, I think that illustration serves as really good advice to any Christian about the need to read, reread, and reread again. Um, to get all the details. And so like another example, John's gospel, you know, at the very end of John's gospel, he tells you exactly why he wrote his gospel so that men may believe. Um, And when you think about John's gospel, it's, he's not as concerned with uh, like the linear details, if you will. Uh, Things are not uh, always in chronological order. And if you just read it without a vision or an understanding, a picture of where he's going, then in some senses, you may even feel like John's contradicting what the other gospels mm-hmm. said, or you may not understand why he's putting the pieces together the way that he is. Now, you know, Matthew is obviously more chronologically uh, in order, we would understand, yes. than John is. But still yet, uh, it helps us understand why did why did Matthew include these details that maybe another gospel writer didn't? Or why did Matthew leave out this detail that maybe another gospel writer chose not to leave out. Um, and the reason is, is because all of these gospel writers are going somewhere. Now, ultimately, yes, they're going to Jesus. They're going to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But I think when you look at the different gospels, you see these nuances in application, right? Mm-hmm. So John may be more evangelistic, where Matthew is more geared towards discipleship and uh, the mission of those who uh, faithfully commit to following Jesus as disciples. So uh, just really, really good insight uh, there, Travis. Uh, so we're going to, you know, this it's, this has been a good introduction, and I think we're going to plan on maybe uh, looking at Matthew's gospel in some upcoming episodes. Is that right? Uh, we may. We may look at, uh, in particular with it being Christmas season, we may unpack some of the uh, how Matthew differs and, is, uh, differs and is distinct from Luke but are both giving uh, eyewitness accounts to the same Christmas narrative that we're all familiar with and love. But um, so what, one more, one more kind of thing I was going to say about the Jewish nuance throughout there. Uh, one more sort of quick illustration. This came from, this came from Dave Allison. Um, what's your favorite band that you like to listen to outside of like Christian music and stuff, Brent? Like maybe you grew up with it, your parents listened to it or something like that. Is there a... I'm the worst person in the world to ask that oh, you don't, question you don't too, Travis. To I, okay. I don't, yeah, I'm not a music guy. <laughs> okay. When I grew up, well, I'll use me. Okay. When I grew up, my parents listened to the Eagles all the time. I don't know if you're very familiar mm-hmm. with them, but that was a, I mean, like, and I'm going to tell you, like, if there is, I just have to hear about three or four notes from an Eagle song. And I'm automatically like transported back to mm-hmm. like the lake in on Boone Lake in 1993. You know what I mean? Like I can, you know, that those four notes that that are played that I hear just for a split second, they transport me to a place that I can mentally see that I can, you know, almost feel in mm-hmm. touch. And Matthew does that a lot in his gospel. You know, he's he plays these like three or four notes that when a Jewish reader hears that they just like when I hear the Eagles, they automatically are transported to identify with what he is saying. So anyhow, and this, this goes again, back to being diligent with your old Testament study. So all of you that are on here, you know, like, and, and do it, you know, and, and 
just like we listen to the Eagles out of love for the Eagles, approach your Old Testament in a similar way, right? Like that's the quote for the day, right? Approach the Old Testament like you would an Eagles concert, right? Yeah. <laughs> approach it in a way that it's not like a laborious weird thing, but that it's a joy to understand, you know, who God is. And I think that's the notes that he intends to hit in making those nuances. All right. Um, moving on, let's, I guess we should actually do an overview of the book quickly, right? Yeah. Since this is actually an overview podcast episode. Sure. There are um, discord, there are, there are, first of all, um, I don't know if you've ever tried to submit a publication for a book to be written, but generally, if you want a, a submission to go through with a book publisher, you don't start with a genealogy. Usually, <laughs> this case, like you want some kind of a hook, and genealogies are not seen as good hooks. Now, to a Jewish audience, sure. When you compare the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, what you find is Luke starts with Adam, Matthew starts with Father Abraham, and then he's going to make a direct connection to David. He's going to make this genealogy structure it in groups of fourteen. You know, fourteen. Mm -hmm to you know several groups of 14 last one's going to be a, a movement of 13 a sort of showing i think that signaling that christ is coming perhaps quicker than anticipated uh one thing that sticks out to me in the genealogy and i'll, I'll just sort of say this to kind of you know point out what i think is the over if i had to say what one sentence of the book of matthew would be what it would be there are four women in the genealogy of matthew and luke doesn't have any and when you look at these four women in the in the in the uh, opening part of Matthew, it's you've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and it says here the wife of Uriah, which of course would have been Bathsheba. These four women have one thing in common. You probably know what it is, don't you, Brent? They're they're Gentiles, yeah, or they're married to a Gentile because Uriah is a Hittite, mm -hmm. even though yeah. Bathsheba was Jewish, she had married a Gentile. And so one of the things that we learn from these four women is that this gospel, while primarily nuanced towards the Jews, as we've unpacked and, you know, quite, I would say, good detail, um, this gospel is for everybody. Jesus, and, and this would be, if I had to give one sentence to encapsulate what I think the gospel of Matthew would be, it would be this. Jesus Christ is the Messiah King the Jews have been waiting on. But he's not just the King of the Jews. He is the King of all. And then almost, I'd have to put a period there, and then the next sentence would be, and to reject this is to live in rebellion against the one true and living God. Yep. That's what I would say, if I had to boil Matthew down, to, I guess that'd be two sentences, wouldn't it? I would say that would be what Matthew would boil down to. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd agree with that. I was I was sort of froze when you asked me about the ladies there, what they had in common. I, I, I was just going to say they were all ladies, but I felt, like we ladies. Had, I felt like we'd already covered that. Yeah, it's just it's, that, it's fascinating because he could have picked any women. I mean, you yeah, know, there's, that's right. What's fascinating is who he leaves out. You know, he doesn't yeah. get Rebecca. He doesn't get Leah. He doesn't get yeah. any of these other women. He gets these four. Yeah. And that's on purpose. Yeah. Again, going to the that's an example of that nuance that the Jewish writer that would have been like, oh, I got it. Those are the four notes that I okay, yeah. this is for everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not just for us, right? All right. There are um five discourses in the gospel of Matthew, right? And uh so you have like usually you have narrative or action, then mm -hmm. you have discourse. And what I hope 
you see as an audience today is that each time that there is an action, there is usually a discourse that follows. And in addition to this, you need to think of it this way. Each time there is an action, the conflict and the level of drama in the book ratchets up. Mm-hmm. Does this make sense? So, and that's going to eventually culminate until we have the the sort of um, uh, what is it called in in writing, where you have the the climax of yeah. these of this is where Jesus goes to the cross. So it's mm-hmm. going to you know uh, you got your first discourse, which of course is the Sermon on the Mount. We we tend to gravitate towards that. Could you imagine the Bible without the Sermon on the mm-hmm. Mount? And Matthew, it would be difficult yeah. to fathom, wouldn't it? Um, you know, you got narrative of healings. You got the second discourse on mission and martyrdom in chapter 10. Um, you got more narrative. Uh, you got the gospel and the kingdoms in 11. Uh, you have third discourse, the parable of the kingdoms. And that's, you know, the two crowds, you know, that, that are there or the crowd to the crowds that are there, the parable of the soils. I mean, how many times have we used and referenced the parable of the soils as pastors, you know, mm. to talk about evangelism, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seeds, the parable of the yeast, um, you know, and then to the disciples, when he sort of pulls them in, the parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the uh, expensive pearl and the parable of the net. So all kinds of uh, wonderful parables. And that's almost, I mean, I would argue when it comes to biblical interpretation, you got larger gospel narrative and then you got parables as almost a sub narrative to interpret Mm -hmm. uh within you know matthew would you agree with that brent i think so yeah that's fair and then uh, fourth discourse life under kingdom authority uh then there's opposition the triumph of grace that happens there in 19 and then finally the passion and the resurrection in 26 fifth discourse is is the last one the olivet discourse and uh you know that that is I mean, can you imagine, we, we automatically gravitate towards that, you know, mm-hmm. as Bible preachers and teachers. And then you have the last uh, sort of action here, the passion, and then you, you don't, you have the resurrection in 28, you have the risen Messiah and disciples in 28, and then we end the, we end the entire book with the Great Commission. We start with the genealogy, we end with the Great Commission, we went through five discourses in the whole thing. There's not a six discourse, which I find interesting. You know, a lot of a lot of scholars have asked, why is there not a six discourse? Well, perhaps the disciples of Jesus, which we would argue, right? This is what this book is built to do, make disciples. You know, we're still writing that discourse, mm-hmm. you know, as we go out into the world and share the gospel. So yeah, that's good stuff. Um, you know, I think it, if uh, we have opportunity, it'll be exciting to maybe dive in a little bit deeper to Matthew's gospel, Travis. And for our listeners, uh, maybe maybe you have questions about uh, Matthew's gospel. Maybe there are some uh, hard passages or something like that that uh, that you've always wrestled with. Uh, feel free just to reach out to us, shoot us an email, uh, reach out with any any questions or anything that you might have about uh, about Matthew's gospel. Travis, thank you for the insight. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Travis is going to be preaching through uh, the gospel of Matthew here coming up. And so, uh, Travis, where can, if our listeners aren't a part of your church, is there a place online where maybe they can listen to that sermon series? Sure, yeah. Uh, so it's going to be a five-part sermon series on the Advent season. It's going to be Christmas According to Matthew. And uh, you can find that on elizabethandgrace.com, elizabethandgrace.com. 
That sounds good. Yeah, Travis, thank you for the insight today. We uh, look forward to having an opportunity to hear your uh, sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew. I, I myself preached through the Gospel of Matthew. It's been about three years ago now. Um, and all in, it took me uh, over 70 weeks. Now, I didn't do that 70 weeks straight. We had some breaks in there, but that's just an idea of how much there is to unpack in Matthew's gospel. And in 70 weeks, uh, man, we just barely scratched the surface. So uh, all of scripture is uh, rich and it is profitable. And that is certainly true for Matthew's gospel. Thank you, Brent. And look forward to seeing you guys next week. I hope everyone has a great week worshiping the Lord and just really praising God for giving us the gift of the gospel of Matthew.